Hey, listen, we have uh, been doing a series the last couple of weeks called Bloopers. And what we've been talking about is mistakes. But specifically, what can we glean from mistakes? Let me ask you all a question as we get started here today. Anybody make mistakes in this place? All right, so I, I think we have a real mistake in the making here. Let me tell you why. Because here's the truth. None of us is without the ability to, to make mistakes. We all make them. And you know, one of the things where, where we fail is, that's the very first place we fail. We fail to take responsibility for mistakes. We fail to accept the fact that we are imperfect and that we do make mistakes. And I'm going to tell you why it's important to start at this place of responsibility, which is something we started talking about a couple of weeks ago. Because for, if we don't take responsibility, here's what we do. We live with the consequences of mistakes and we live from those mistakes. We continue a cycle of mistakes. Last week, we looked at the example of uh, three uh, Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what we learned is that we must maintain endurance. Endurance is simply the ability to withstand and to continue to press forward in the face of challenges. And one of the reasons why we make mistakes often is because we get impatient. But let me tell you something about mistakes because I know that I'm amongst pros because I'm one of them. Let me tell you something about mistakes. The greatest mistake we can make is not falling. See, falling is not failure. The greatest mistake we can make is falling and not getting back up. It's when we give up. And I'm here to tell you something, that there's a reason why the scripture talks about mistakes. It's not because you're a mistake. It's not because you're not good enough. It's not because you have to live by the weight of those mistakes. It's because God wants us to see that we can recover from mistakes and we can enjoy something better. Isn't that good news? Come on, I don't know about you, but I think that's great news. I think that that's something that we all need to hear. And so today we're going to look at uh, this from a different angle. We're going to talk on the topic of don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. You're going to tell somebody, don't take the bait. Tell somebody else, don't take the bait. You know, when we fall in the midst of mistakes, when we begin to make mistakes and we continue to make mistakes, the truth is that we're falling in one of three areas. Sometimes we're falling in all of them. Let me read to you 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 for context. Listen to what the scripture says. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, you got to understand what the scripture is saying here according to the original Greek language. What it's actually saying is that the world is comprised of a system. It's a way of belief. It's a, man, it's a manner of life. It's how this world runs. And it goes on to say that if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. That's talking about God. Watch this. For everything in the world, you should perk your ears up right now because it begins to identify these three points of pressure that operate in our lives if we're not careful. It says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So we got to really consider what's happening here. You know, it's said that in the, uh, in the Atlantic Ocean, there is 
a uh, body of water that's comprised of about 500,000 square miles. It's what's commonly referred to as the Bermuda Triangle. And since the mid 20th century, what they've found, strangely enough, is that there's been over 50 vessels, ships that have disappeared. And uh, over 20 aircraft that have just gone missing. No clue as to what's happened. It's mysterious. But what's interesting is that in this particular triangular shaped uh, body of water, some of the weirdest things happen. Uh, things like uh, uh, your, your radio signal suddenly begins to uh, stop working. Uh, your compass bearings go wacky or sometimes they even stop working altogether. In addition to that, high velocity winds begin to develop and these storms come out of nowhere and these tidal waves rise without warning. And it's for that reason that many people that have to travel through this area go thousands of miles around and incur exorbitant costs of fuel and time because they know I have to avoid these three points. Let me ask you a question today. Like the Bermuda Triangle, when the Bible talks about the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, it talks about how we're oriented without God. And we're going to dig into this for a moment, but what I want you to think about is this. If you get caught in any of these or by any of these, here's the truth. You are bound to find yourself in error. And you know what's the worst thing about disregarding the wisdom of God? We think we got it together, and we don't. We don't. So I'll ask a question again, and I want you to be honest. Anybody make mistakes? Right? We all do. Right? Now, here's a question for personal reflection. And please don't be that person that's sitting next to someone and nudges them, right? Please don't be that person that says, see, I told you you had to come to church today. No, that's the reason why you're here, right? But I want you to think about this. Have you been making choices and living your life independent of the wisdom of God? If your answer is yes to that, let me ask you this. How's that really working for you? What results are you really getting? Where are you going in life? No judgment in that. And so when the Bible talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that word lust is important to understand. It's not talking about a sexual lust or desire for someone from the opposite sex. It's literally talking about a strong desire, a longing, a craving for what is forbidden, for what is not good. I think we can all, if we're honest, be true and say, I've been there. I've done that. Hey, maybe, maybe we're in it now. But the Bible identifies three points of pressure that affect us all that are sure to be in operation when mistakes are developing or when we're living mistakenly. The first one is the flesh. The lust of the flesh simply means this. It speaks of desires that are centered upon our own human nature. They want nothing to do with God. And here's a telltale sign of them. They're usually done in haste and they're based on impulses. Here's what it looks like. Sucky, sucky, quack, quack. Mm-mm, Who told you to come out with those shorts? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's those shorts that are becoming infamously famous around guys. Guys, don't do it. To the knee, guys, to the knee. To the knee. You don't wear those. 
Some of you got what I'm talking about. The rest of you will catch up. It's desire based on impulse, and it's for the purpose of physical and moral weakness. It takes us beyond the place of control. The book of Romans, chapter 13, verse, starting at verse 11, says, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. This is speaking to people that are woke, that are sleeping. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Listen to what the scripture is talking about when it says this. It's talking about coming to a place where we actually see the truth. Where we see the path that's leading us down to errors. Do you realize that life is not meant to live backwards? What do I mean by that? I made the mistake and now I'm going, oh my God, I made that mistake. I'm going to try not to do that again. You're living backwards while trying to go forwards and you're not making any progress. And so the scripture goes on to say, let us behave decently. As in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual morality or debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and watch this. Do not what? Think. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This lust of the flesh that the scripture uh, speaks of is due to a lackadaisical approach to gaining understanding without God. It's literally trying to do it my way, but it leaves you without wisdom. It leaves you without a way. It leads you to deception. You find yourself doing things you never thought you would do. Living in places and, 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 and being amongst things that you never thought were possible. Can I submit to you, my friend? God is a good God. He says in his word, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you hope in the future, not to harm you. Why would you resist the hand of God? And so we have to really dig into this because the flesh leads us to a place where we can't receive any light. In essence, we end up with darkened understanding. The scripture talks about the lust of the eyes, and this is desire centered upon superficial appearance. It's where we take no interest in deeper inspection beyond what appeals to our sight. It sounds like this. It looks good. If it looks good, sounds good, shines, then it must be good for me. Can I say this to you? It might be good for you, but that doesn't mean it's God. And if it's not, it's really not good. The Bible says this, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord of lights from up above. God is the one that brings good things into our lives. So this lust of the eye speaks of the person who takes no, uh, no interest in going beyond the superficial. We overlook the process of seeking wisdom. We fixate upon people and things. We take our eyes off of anything that's right and true and good and godly. Listen to the words of Jesus in this regard. Matthew 6, starting at verse 22, Jesus says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, the whole body will be full of light. Think about where your 
vision for life is set upon. Believe it or not, that's where you're going. So if we were to plug in an HDMI cable to your head right now, and we were to broadcast that for everyone to see, would you be willing to display it? See, what comes into the eyes determines what begins to develop in the heart, which defines the vision, the path for life. And so he goes on to say, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? There are so many people today that claim to be enlightened, to, 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 to have it together, to know what life is all about. But you're still empty. You're still struggling. You're still insecure. You're unfulfilled. You feel like you have to continue to press for more and more and more. And the more you get, the less you have. Because you have nothing at all. It's due to a lack of light. We're missing something. The Bible talks about the pride of life. And this is desires centered upon self-sufficiency. It's arrogance. Here's what it sounds like. Me, 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 me. Honor me, recognize me, do for me. What about me? It's relationships where it's all about you. It's not about anyone else. You work for you. you. You're in relationships for you. You do for you. Anything that you do is not really for another person. It might have the appearance, but it's really about what you get. It's arrogance. And this pride of life is one that inflates us. We seek attention. We want status. We, it's, we, we, we're, we're looking for self-advantage. We compare for the purposes of inflating ourselves. Can I tell you, my friends, that balloon will eventually pop. It doesn't work. And so this pride of life is due to an inflated view of oneself that leads to uncurbed passions. It's the reason why the scripture tells us that pride comes before the fall. It always comes before the fall, without question. And so whenever we succumb to any of these pressure points, like in the Bermuda Triangle, the results always lead to catastrophe. You know, the scriptures record a time when a guy named King David, he was the second king of Israel, made some grave mistakes. I mean, really bad mistakes. And it was because he navigated his life into uncharted territory. He went to places he did not belong, and he began to do things and see life in a way that was destructive. It's not unlike us. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings do what? When kings go off to war. Come on, people, work with me. Let's try this again. Work with a brother. Preach with a brother. Help a brother. In the spring, at the time when kings do what? Go off to war. Watch this. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. That should stick out to you. Why? Because kings go off to war. And what we find is David is sending someone else. Don't forget that point. And so uh, they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained where? In Jerusalem. And so one evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Somebody say, uh-oh. Uh -oh. Listen, this woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. 
The man said, she is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. Just a, a fun Bible fact. This man, Eliam, was one of his trusted advisors. So David is straight up violating right now. Right? So uh, she's the daughter of Eliam. But watch this. It gets even worse. And she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is one of his trusted soldiers in his army. This dude is straight up violating. And so it goes on to say, uh, then David sent messengers to get her. Do you see what's happening here? And she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. That just means that she had just gotten over her menstrual cycle. And then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. How many of you would agree that's a bad situation? This just got real bad real quick, right? The drama in the Bible. Who would think? Hollywood got nothing on the Bible, man. This dude was trife. So get this, but it gets worse. Let me tell you why it gets worse. Because David concocts, he concocts a devious plan to get out of this. He says, I know what I'm going to do. Hey, go get me Uriah from the battlefield and send him back to me. And so Uriah comes back. He has this whole spread for Uriah. And he says, Uriah, tell me, how are the men doing? How's the battle going? How are the generals? How's everything going? How are the provisions? And Uriah faithfully tells him everything. And then David says to him, you know, you're just coming back from the war. Why don't you go home and hang out with your wife? Take, take a break before you go back. You know what David was hoping for? That he would get together with his wife so that David could pin it on him. That's your baby. I'm not the daddy. Right? You are not the father is what he's trying to accomplish. Right? So here's what, what happens. Uriah, being a man of integrity that honored God, and honored his brothers at war. And even the king and his kingdom says this. I'm not doing that. I'm paraphrasing here, but Uriah decides that he's going to stay at the gate of the king's palace with the, the armed guard of the king, that he's going to sleep with them. He's not going to go to his home. Why? Because how could he dare to do that when his brothers are giving their lives at war on the field? How could he dishonor them? So he doesn't do it. David gets wind of it, and guess what David does? David says, Uriah, come on up. We've, we've got a whole banquet for you. Uriah comes up. He's got all this spread, but now he's giving them all this wine. He gets Uriah drunk. He says, Uriah, go home. Stay with your wife. And then tomorrow you can go back to the war. Uriah does not do it. And so David says, I got a situation here. This is bad. And David decides, I know what I'm going to do. He writes a letter in his own hand, which is actually a death sentence. And watch how messed up this dude is. He takes the letter sealed with his stamp, his seal, and he puts it in Uriah's hand. And he says, Uriah, go back to the battlefield and put this in Joab, the commander of my army's hands. Give it to read him. Don't let anybody see it. Uriah goes back to the battlefield, puts it in Joab's hand. And here's what the letter said. Put Uriah where the fiercest part of the battle is and then withdraw all the soldiers that are with him and leave him there to die. Needless to say, Uriah dies in battle and David thinks he's gotten away with this. There's no denying that King David made many mistakes here. But I have a question. Now, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but there is a scripture that 
clearly attests to the fact that God declares that David was a man after his heart. Here's what God is saying in the scripture with that. David has my heart. He has my heart. He has my heart for people. He has my heart for things that are good and right and godly. He has my heart for this world. He has my heart to lead. How is it that a man that God says has his heart, his very heart, how is it that this man could make such grave mistakes? And I will tell you how, because we are all capable of it. Lust always leads to loss. Let me translate that for you. Desires that lack wisdom. Desires for what is wrong and untrue and godly. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what CNN says. I don't care what your favorite movie star says. I don't care who backs it, who supports it, who says this is what we stand for. I am telling you, if it is not godly, it is not good. It is an error in the making and you are mistaken and it will lead you to destruction. And let me tell you, there's no judgment in that. And there is no condemnation in that. Let me tell you why. Because a, a God that loves you would never leave you to your own devices without at least warning you. The truth sets us free. And so what can we, what can we learn about avoiding this trap, about not falling for the bait in these areas of pressure point? Well, you know, these three areas have a beginning. And they don't start at the point of desire. The first point I want to leave you here for application is that being in the wrong place never helps you do the right thing. Let me say that again. Being in the wrong place never helps you do the right thing. Let me bring your attention back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Listen to what it says. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. It goes on to tell us, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Get this, David wasn't where he was supposed to be, and that opened the door for those desires. Can I say this to you, men, women, mothers, fathers, husband, wife? You have no business being a bunch, uh, amongst a bunch of people that are encouraging you to go the opposite of your spouse. No business. You have no business entertaining anything that plants that seed in your thought process. You have no business hanging with people that tell you, oh, you cuffed. I'm more than cuffed. I'm, I'm one with her. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I'm just saying, man. We got to twist it in this world. And so, get this, David is supposed to be on the battlefield doing what kings do, doing what leaders do. And instead, he's at home chilling. He's relaxing. He's taking it slow. It's all about his leisure. I don't have to be in the battle. I have capable soldiers. And thus, the door opens up for the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. My point with that is that these do not materialize in a moment, they need a door of opportunity to bring that destruction into your life. Let me ask you a question for personal reflection. Where are you? Where are you? What conversations, what relationships, what friendships, what information, what reels, what social media, what news, 
What opinions do you expose yourself to? Are you in the right place? Are you amongst the right people? Listen, your net worth in life is made up by your network. Who's in your network? Who are the people that you, 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 you surround yourself with? So David was supposed to be doing what kings do. But instead, he chose to stay back. And when you're in the wrong place, here's the reality. You grow lazy about your calling. You grow lazy about your responsibilities. You grow lazy about what's right and true. And the thing is that just because it feels right, it appears right, and it's what you want to do doesn't mean you're in the right place. As a matter of fact, it means you're in the wrong place. You have no room for the wisdom of God. The next point I want to leave you with is that you may not be able to change what the eyes may see, but you can't change what you magnify. Let me say that again and let me qualify that statement. You may not be able to change what the eyes may see, but you can change what the eyes magnify. Mind you, uh, the eyes are just a portal, but it's what we do after the first look, after it crosses our sight, that then leads to mistakes. I remember years ago, we were newly married at that time, and uh, I used to work in the city in uh, midtown Manhattan. And every now and then, I would, you know, and at that point, I was pretty serious. I was very, you know, committed to just really finding out who God was, not because what somebody told me, not because I grew up in church, but I really was just hungry for the truth. And so I was on a, on a, on a search that I'm still on till this very day for life, and it's transformed my life. I'm telling you to transform yours. And so there was a coworker of mine who knew I was a Christian. He knew what I believed. And so we were walking back after lunch. We were, I believe, on 35th and 8th around there. And we're walking back to the office. And he says to me that there's these beautiful young women that are walking towards us. And they're smiling at us. And so he goes, come on, man. Look. And, and I, I'm just kind of just. <laughs> yes, honey, that's right. I heard you say that. You better believe it. But I just decided, you know what, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Not because of weakness, but because I know that everything begins with these. And so I said, I'm going to just keep walking. He goes, but they're God's creation. What's my point with that? My point with that is simply this, that there are a lot of things all around us that easily draw the eye. You can't change what's around you. But let me tell you what you can change. You can change what you begin to enlarge in your sight. And the scripture clearly tells us that David saw Bathsheba. Right? He saw a woman taking a bath. It could have ended there. Instead, the Bible says the very next portion of the scripture, and he saw that she was beautiful. And then after he saw that she was beautiful, he said, yo, my man, What's her name? Who is she? And then after that, he gets this information and he found out that she's married and that she's the daughter to one of his most trusted advisors. And David says, gotta have it. Go get her. Bring her to me right now. And then he goes a step further. He impregnates her. He abuses his power and his authority. 
He takes advantage of a situation. Do you see how everything can quickly spiral out of control just by what you magnify with your eyes? Fellas, she may be pretty, but let me tell you, don't go to that second place of a look. Ladies, he might be fine. Don't go there. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, he's fine. Ah, uh, come here with those gray shorts. Who let you out your house? Don't do it. Don't go there. It's a trap. It's a trap. Let me tell you how this becomes enlarged in our sight. How what we see becomes enlarged. James chapter 1, starting at verse 14, says this. But each person is tempted when they were dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Listen, the temptation is not what you see. The temptation is when you allow it to become desire. It goes on to say, then after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, temptation doesn't begin at the point of sight. It begins at the point when desire and imagination take over. And it becomes enlarged. Now you don't just see a woman, you don't just see a car, you see yourself driving it. You see yourself sporting it in front of everybody. You see everybody going, man, that's a nice car. You give no thought to the fact that you will steal from your future. You will steal from your kids' mouths. You will steal from their education. All to get yourself what you want now by putting yourself in debt to a place where you can never break free from. It's destruction. And what I want you to see is this, that your eyes are not just for sight. According to the book of James chapter 1, our eyes are for conception. Listen, what you set your eyes upon, whether good or bad, you will give birth to. You will give birth to it. So let me ask you a question. What are you conceiving with your eyesight? What are you conceiving with your vision for life? Where are you going based on the vision that you have? Does it even include God? My friend, there's no judgment in this. But let me tell you, why would you choose your own way or what other people show you or what you see on the other side of the grass? It might look green, but it's because they watered their grass. Work on yours. And so sinful action doesn't begin at the point of action. It begins at the point of lustful desires, which leads me to this point. Listen to Job 31. I'm only going to read verses 1 and 2 just for the sake of time. Job says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Listen to what Job is saying. Let me just break that down in layman's terms. Here's what Job is saying. He's saying, I have made a contract, a covenant with my eyes. Now, this is an important point because back in those times, covenant wasn't what we do today, a little contract where we just signed. In those days, covenant was cut with blood. In other words, something had to be sacrificed, blood had to be spilled, and this was for life. 
And so here's what Job is saying. I have cut my eyes. I have made a sacrifice that I will not allow my eyes to look upon another woman besides my wife. Can I give you guys good news for those of you that are married, those of you that are endeavoring to be married? Here's what the scripture says. It says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. You may not agree with her. You may not like some things, but my brother, let me tell you, she is good because she's from God. She's from God. Keep pursuing her. Keep building her. Keep growing with her. Keep learning about her. Man, we've been married, oh my God, almost 20 years. Over 20 years. I feel young. Um, but let me tell you, you can't stop learning about them. It's a journey. And Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Why? Because he understood that his lot came from God. God, you provided her. God, you've been good to me. God, you're the reason why I get up. Listen, I get it. Life may be hard sometimes. There are challenges. It's real. The struggle's real. But so is the God that's for you, that's with you, and calling you. He's got good things for you. The next point I want to leave you with is that instant gratification is destruction in disguise. Instant gratification is destruction in disguise. This lust of the flesh that drives us to go by immediacy with everything. David saw Bathsheba, but here's what we know, that even before he knew that she was married, he had already made up his mind, i got to have her. How do we know that? Because he didn't just look at her. He longed for her. And he didn't just long for her. He had to know who she was. He had to know where she lived. He had to know if she's single or not. And when he found out she wasn't, see, the desire was already there. The decision was already made. So David did not care about her marital status. He did not care about the grave mistake that he was about to make. And the truth is that when we are led by this desire for immediacy, to, to, to satisfy ourselves, one of the surest ways to identify it is this. It's that I just want what I want right now. I want that car right now. I want that house right now. I want that toy right now. I want that woman. I want that man. I want that money. I want that job. I want that attention. I want that respect. I want that status right now. And you know now is a warning for a greater truth. Now, whenever you feel driven to do something now, right now, I have to have it right now, here's what it's actually indicating. That it's really no. Whenever you're driven by now, your response should be no. It's an exaggeration. See, living by the lust of the flesh is a dangerous trap because it encourages us to speed through decisions, to speed by important details that provide wisdom, to speed past God. Anybody speed and ever get into a crash? You ever been in there where you, you speed? And you, you were speeding and you got into a crash? I guarantee you why you crashed. I've been there too. Let me tell you why you, you, you crashed. 
Because there were details along that way that you missed that told you you're about to put yourself in danger. And we speed through life based upon desires and we miss the truth. Let me just give you real quick from Proverbs, uh, from a couple of scriptures. We're not going to really dig into them. Proverbs 19.2 says this, desire without knowledge is not good. When you're speeding, you miss knowledge. And whoever makes haste, whoever speeds with his feet, misses his way. Listen to Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty, who's speeding, only comes to poverty. It doesn't just leave you broke, it breaks you. Proverbs 29.20 says this. Do you see a man who is hasty, who's speeding with his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says this. Now the works of the flesh, these desires these Im for immediacy, I got to have it now, are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. And then he says this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's, here's what that, that's not saying. Because for some of us, maybe you've been taught this way, or maybe this is what you're thinking. That means I'm going to hell. That is not what the scripture is saying. The scripture clearly states this, that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. In other words, it is a quality and a state of life that you can enjoy, that you can live in, that can take you to higher planes and lead you towards what God has for you. And so when we choose to live by the lust of the flesh, God is still present. But we make ourselves absent from all that God has for us. Hmm. The last point I want to leave you with here is this, as we come to a close. And it's that pride will cost you everything. And it will leave you with nothing. Pride will cost you everything. And it will leave you with nothing. You know, as I'm getting older, my wife and I, we, we've been applying something for many years. We, we try to be as wise as possible about where we invest in every area of our lives, where we invest our time, where we invest our finances, where we invest our talents, our resources, what relationships we invest into. Let me tell you something about investments that's true. Investments cost something when you make them but when you make an investment a wise investment will always give you a return pride is an unwise investment why because when you live pridefully when you live for self not only do you get nothing but it leaves you nothing to live with it robs you of life and peace it robs you of opportunities why because you're so focused on yourself that you can't even see your next step you can't see the wisdom the blessings the provision the people that God is surrounding you with the resources the plans that God has for your life David was king over all Israel but his estimate of himself became inflated. How do we know that? 
because his actions demonstrate that he was willing to abuse his power to get what he wanted. I'm the king. I can do this. And no one can change it. That was his attitude in this moment. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit, a haughty belief system, an inflated view of yourself. You're so large in your own perspective that you're larger than wisdom, you're larger than the mistakes you're making, you're larger than God, you're larger than the people that helped you get where you are today, and you're larger than the wisdom that's available to you. And when we become larger than life, we're just a balloon waiting to pop. It's going to go bad. And so as we stand here today and close, I want to say to you that pride is an expensive appetite. It'll break you. And it'll leave you broke every time. And the question is if we know this, why is it that we still give in to pride? Why do we take the bait? Why do we fall for the trap? <laughs> it's a great question that we're asking right now. It's because we're not paying attention before the fall. Let me read something to you that I wanted to share with you. The best way to maintain your footing on a journey is to pay attention to the path you're walking on presently. What am I saying with that? Where are you right now? in your own estimate of yourself. Do you live for me? Is, all, is it all about I? Because I, 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 I eventually becomes a cry for help. It becomes a cry of pain. I, 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 how am I going to break out of this? How am I going to, how am I going to recover from this? And I'm so glad that you might, some of us might be asking ourselves this, that question, whether you're here or online. It starts where you first stopped. It starts with God. It starts with heeding the wisdom of God. Galatians 5.24 says this, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. How do we overcome these pressure points? Jesus put it this way. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye leads you astray, he says, gouge it out. My friends, living with the peace of God and enjoying the blessing of God and discovering the path that God has for you, for your home, for your decisions, for whatever area of your life it is, starts with stopping the very thing that is killing it. The best thing to do is turn around. Turn your sight. Turn away from those desires that are impulsive. Turn away from pride. And by turning away from them, here's what you might not realize. You're actually turning to God. You're opening the door for change. You're on a path to true wisdom and good things. As we come to a close today, I want us to consider that truth is no good unless we actually do something with it. 
What good is the truth and the wisdom that God provides us from his word if we don't apply it? And so I would just simply submit to you to ask yourself this question. What is God speaking to you? What is God revealing to you? And I want you to understand that God is not the God that some of us grew up or uh, knowing or we thought we knew. God isn't the God with the thunderbolt waiting to strike you. How do I know that? Because the scripture says this, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And verse 17 in John 3 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. God is not approaching you with a whip. God is not beating you down. God is not striking you down. No. It says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. What we have is a God who's extending himself to us and saying, you've made mistakes, but you don't have to live from them any longer. See, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, the scripture says. And I want to affirm something to you that you might be thinking about. God truly is good. God truly loves you. You're not a mistake. Your mistakes don't define you. Somebody needs to hear this today in this house and online. You are not a mistake. And your mistakes have not changed God's love for you. And if you believe that you are sadly mistaken, and thus you can't receive what God has for you. Today as we close, I pray that the strength of God would begin to lift you up. Jesus said that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. There's freedom in this house today. God is working in our hearts. He's working in your life. If there's anyone here today, maybe you're here, maybe you're online, and you find yourself listening to this message, and it brings to the surface, it brings directly into your point of view, your line of sight, the reality, I've been living mistakenly. I've been doing this the wrong way. Here's what you need to know. Number one, God's not mad at you. Number two, God's not beating you up. If anything, the fact that you recognize that right now is the door of opportunity where God is showing you, I'm here to help you. And if you believe that God is speaking to you today, here's what you must know. That God dealt with the greatest issue that drives all mistakes. It's this issue of sin. We can't get away from it. We think according to it. We remember it. So how do we get past it? You know, God said, they can't do it, so I will. He came as a man. Died a death to pay the penalty of sin because we couldn't pay it. And then he rose again, not just to prove that he's God, but to prove that you can get up again and rise to a new life. If you believe that today, would you raise your hand as we close in prayer? We want to acknowledge what God is doing in your life. We want to walk alongside you. If you're online, let us know. Send us a private message. Give us an emoji. We'll be in touch with you. Make sure you stop by in the house at our VIP desk. We want to connect with you. Let's pray this together as we close. Say, Jesus, I believe. You love me. And you're not mad at me. I believe that you paid the price for my sin and that you rose again to prove that you are God, but to make a way so that this day 
I can rise too. And so today I declare, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my God. And from this day forward, I thank you for a new life. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us here at Church of the Bridge today. I pray that you had a personal encounter with God, that he spoke to you powerfully, and that he met you at your place of need with this message. I also want to encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube page. By doing so, you'll be able to check out past messages, uh, past events that we've done. You'll also be able to see what's happening now and those things that are to come. And lastly, I'd like to invite you to join with us in all that God is doing with your giving. Feel free to do so on our website. Again, thank you again for joining us, and I can't wait to connect with you next week.